0: Hello everyone and welcome to Invested in Our New Reality. I'm Manjula Salvaraja. I'm a technology journalist, radio and podcast host, former startup executive, and a national technology columnist to the CBC. And I'm thrilled to be hosting this season of the podcast. For the next several weeks, we're going to be focusing on the idea of scaling up through conversations that empower growth and success. As you'll hear, Season 10 features founders who participate in the scale-up platform, which is delivered by Invest Ottawa with the support of the Government of Canada through FedDev Ontario. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Peter Oblinas, the CEO of Distiller SR, an Ottawa-based company focused on AI-enabled literature review automation software. Peter, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So lots to talk about here. Um, You know what? Let's start here. What exactly is AI-enabled literature review automation software? Uh,
1: That's a great question. Maybe we take a step back and uh, start with what is a, a literature review? Uh, essentially, a, a literature review is a, is a scientific process uh, for distilling information from already published information. Um, let me give you an example of, of where that would be used. So let's say you've got a medical device and you're obligated to demonstrate to the regulators that it's safe and effective. You have a couple of options. You could run clinical trials. to to prove it. Problem with clinical trials are they are expensive, they're very time consuming, and they do put patients at risk because you're experimenting on on human beings. If this device has been around for a while, or similar devices have been around for a while, you can, instead of doing a trial, you can do a literature review and look at all of the scientific or peer-reviewed publications that have come out on that particular device, find the papers that are relevant to the questions you're trying to answer, and from those, uh, from those papers, remove all the key data elements, extract all those key data elements and analyze them. And so what you end up with is actually uh, a piece of evidence that's more powerful than a clinical trial because it's looking at multiple studies and it's aggregating the information. And it's going to take you a lot less time and a lot less money to produce a lit review than, than if you were to do, for example, a trial or multiple trials. So. Where we come in is if you look at a literature view in itself, they start off by you ask a clinical question, you search for all of the available literature that's out there. Uh, you don't want to miss anything. So you you have a pretty broad search. So you pull in, you know, could be thousands, could be tens of thousands of scientific papers that your search returns. You now, now need to go through that list. Remove all of the uh, all of the reference material that is not relevant to the question you're trying to answer, and then from the remaining stack of papers, you now go through and extract the key data elements that you can analyze. Um, as you can imagine, that process is very logistically uh, intensive. it's very time consuming, it's very expensive. and because you're dealing with thousands of papers and mi- potentially millions of cells of data, uh, it's very error prone as well. And and if, if you're not using a, a software package like ours, you're probably using Excel <laughs> to do it. And and so what what our tool is, is basically a workflow engine that allows you to do that entire literature review process inside a SaaS platform. It manages the whole process for you, and it allows you to produce something that is completely audit-ready and transparent and reproducible. And those are the hallmarks of a scientific process. The AI comes in uh, in a number of ways but most fundamentally it helps you find the papers that are relevant faster. And it it simply does that by looking at the papers that your humans are selecting and which ones they are are, are excluding. And it it learns from that process and starts to bubble the most promising papers that are remaining in the pile to the top of the pile so that you find them faster. And it doesn't sound like a a big deal, but it can save up to 70% of the screening time uh, just by doing that one process. Another way that you can use AI, obviously, is if you're asking specific questions in your literature review, like, is this paper uh, a randomized control trial? Yes or no. Uh, you've now collected a lot of training material uh, as people go through and answer that question for for hundreds, perhaps thousands of papers that you can give to the system and it can learn to recognize and how to answer that question. So in future reviews, you can now build a a classifier, for example, an AI classifier that can answer the question, is this a randomized controlled trial? So there's a couple of ways that you can use the AI element.
0: Mm. You know, I I think of a lot of possibilities here, but talk to me about who your uh, typical clients would be, like who could use this, uh, would use this.
1: So it's, it's pretty broad. Uh, the, the concept of a, of a systematic literature review has been very broadly adopted. Our primary customers are medical device companies, pharmaceutical companies, uh, government agencies and sort of global not-for-profits. So folks like the WHO, um, folks like the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., FDA, Health Canada. And then, you know, the private sector, basically the large pharmaceutical and medical device companies. And it'll be for many different purposes within those organizations. In some cases, they will be, if I'm a medical device company or a pharmaceutical company, I'm producing a regulatory dossier to give to a a company or a country's regulatory agency to show that my product is safe and effective to help get it on the market or keep it on the market. If I'm a, a government agency, I may be looking at scientific literature on practice guidelines. And and uh, a good example of that would be uh, Teresa Tam uh, advising Canada on the best ways to handle specific aspects of COVID. A lot of what she was telling us was based on um, literature reviews or or at least high level reviews of the available scientific literature. And in fact, um, our product was used in a lot of those cases. So,
0: mm. What was the aha moment that that inspired you to start the company?
1: So that's a great question. Uh basically in the in the early 2000s, uh, I had co-founded another company with with two partners um, that did electronic data capture and data management for clinical trials. So we were a SaaS platform basically managing patient data through the whole trial process. Uh and it was was pretty new at the time. SaaS was uh, was just just starting to make an appearance in that kind of context one of our early customers was the ottawa hospital research institute and we were very fortunate to be uh, to be working with them and as we worked with them we spoke with them a lot and a lot of their researchers were doing systematic literature reviews and they recognized right off the top that the standard practice for doing literature reviews was was very inefficient and very uh, very error prone so they'd actually built a little uh, in-house prototype for helping manage the literature review process uh, within their shop they basically came to us and said, you know, you guys are, you guys are geeks. Maybe, uh, maybe you can find a better way to do this and, and maybe, maybe uh, help us productize this. And we did experiment with that quite a bit. And then eventually after, after TrialStat, TrialStat was a victim, unfortunately, of the, uh, of the global economic meltdown in 2007, 2008, it was a VC funded firm and it did not survive that, uh, that downturn. But uh, once, once TrialStat had moved on, um, and a number of the folks uh, that had worked with us at TrialStat, co-founded the current company which was at that time called evidence partners now called distiller sr um, to focus primarily and only on literature review so uh, we were very very fortunate that you know with our uh, with our computer science hats on the whole literature review process just screamed uh, this is a great candidate candidate for automation, and there were many uh, quick wins we could get in in uh, in implementation that that could help users really uh, solve that problem quickly. So it was a it was a problem that was ripe for automation, and, and again, we were sort of in the right place at the right time to see it just as it was as becoming a becoming an issue.
0: You know it's interesting identifying customers, the right customers to go after at the start of any any uh, entrepreneurial journeys is, is a tough thing to do to begin with. You know, I heard you say quick wins. I heard you talk about uh, the broad ways that this can be applied. So I wonder the technology that you're offering is is very specific. How did you initially identify clients who could who could use the product? and and, and you know, when you did, how did you convince them that this was? the The solution, the technology that they needed
1: right. so again, we were very fortunate that uh, that we were collaborating uh, and working closely with OHRI. They were our first customer um, and the OHRI uh, was actually part of the uh, evidence-based practice center program, which is a u.s um, funded research um, uh, platform. That uh, uses uh, sort of centers of excellence around North America, and what they will do is, uh, when they need a literature review um, created, they will will offer it out for tender to various qualified evidence based practice centers, of which OHRI was one of them. Through OHRI, we were able to get introductions to other members of the evidence based practice centers. So, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins, for example, Mayo for another one, and. uh, and really, again, because the problem that we were solving was so onerous and 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 so ripe for uh, for automation, it was it was like trying to sell um, Excel to somebody who was using an abacus. It, it's just the value proposition was was very obvious. And, uh, and typically once people saw the solution, they would, they would adopt it, even though it, it, in those days, it was a very simple solution. It didn't do a lot of what it does today. It didn't have AI in it, for example. It had a, it had a, a rudimentary workflows compared to what we have today, but it was still such a dramatic step forward that we were able to, uh, to shore up early, um, early clients, uh, and, and that basically became, because we were super cash conscious as well, uh, we became cash flow positive in, in the first full year of operations. That's
0: incredible. I mean, I think especially in this environment too, people like to hear about companies that are cautious about cash flow. Uh, and uh, congratulations on this. I mean, cash flow positive, I, I think that's that's an incredible, uh, incredible win, uh, which is the case now that you have clients all over the world who, uh, Talk to us about Distiller SR's scale up journey. Like, what have been the keys to your success so
1: far? Um, I think a couple of things. I mean, luckily, I mean, it wasn't our first rodeo. For for most of well, two of the three uh, co founders had had been involved in startups before, so we'd kind of kind of learned from our mistakes, and and we'd made plenty of mistakes in earlier earlier go rounds. So uh, that I think was that served us very well going into it. It, it it's really what shaped our. Our extremely cash flow cautious approach, um, having having been involved in, in in a previous company that was VC funded that uh, that didn't make it, um, and and I guess we set out to look for significant um, undermet or unmet needs in the healthcare space. Um, two of the founders were were married to physicians, um, and one of whom was doing a significant amount of research as well. So. Um, again, we were looking for ways that we could bring something, a, a solution to solve a known problem, rather than bringing a, a solution around and then looking for a problem. I'd I'd say our our keys to success. I mean, one of them is being in the right place at the right time. You can never uh, never discount that. We were very fortunate to be uh, cohabitating with with some very smart people at OHRI uh, to whom we you know owe a lot. Uh, they were they were fantastic uh, to work with. And because of that, we basically knew what our initial client would look like uh, and what their needs were before we built the product. So we got to we got to build a product. Granted, it was you know an MVP at the time, but but we did get to build it with with quite a bit of of uh, deep domain knowledge there. Uh, I think another one is because our product is is not a consumer product, we we're able to go cash flow positive with a very relative you know relatively small number of customers. We only had to to close. Uh, about five, uh, five accounts before we could, could hit cash flow positive. And, uh, and, and that's, I think, a different, a totally different type of approach than if you're going after a consumer-based platform. I think that's a whole other game, the consumer play, and it's not one that I really have much, uh, expertise in. Um, again, I get a big key, key to our success was, was being cash flow positive. And, and the way we were able to do that was, Essentially, essentially by starving ourselves in the first couple of years, uh, but by doing so, we didn't have to dilute and and the company was cash flow positive in two thousand and nine and continued to be self-funding uh, through until when we brought on some funding just uh, mid last year, so 2022 and it was not a uh, it was not a funding round based on on a requirement to add additional fuel to the fire it was it was it was it was simply to shore up some additional capital should we need it. Um, and, and to fund some other initiatives that we had going, but the company continues to be uh, running in a cash flow positive situation, and and that just gives us a lot of flexibility. We don't have we uh, don't have to be watching over our shoulders all the time. And if it's po- and I know that you can't do that with every business, but we were fortunate in our in our situation to be able to do that. Um, again. I think developing a very deep understanding of the problem that we're trying to solve through constant interaction with our user community is, is fundamental. Uh, when we demo the product, a common comment is, you know, how did you guys think of this? How did you think to, to do it this way? And the answer is always like, we didn't. Our customer base told us this and we integrated it into the platform. So again, the platform is acutely tuned to the specific pain points that our customers face. Uh, and, and it allows, it again, it allows to shorten the sales cycle because people recognize their problem when they see it, uh, they recognize the solution, and it resonates. Um, obviously, in the in the early days, we were fortunate. We had a, a, an amazing uh, software developer named Ian Stefanison, who was one of the co-founders of the company. He was able to develop New features and functionality for us at a very, very high rate of speed. You know, that typically the, the, you're demoing the product uh, for, a, for a potential client. They say, can it do this? And you go, yes, I think it can. And then we hang up the phone and go, we have to make the product do this. <laughs> and sometimes, somehow by the next morning or a couple of days later, the product had that capability. So we're again, really having the right. The right people on board uh, at the early early stages was important we We were also very fortunate in that the whole field of systematic literature reviews experienced explosive growth in the teens uh, when the medical device industry in Europe uh started to bring in new regulations that would mandate the use of literature reviews in the regulatory process for all medical devices so any company that's selling a medical device in the EU which is essentially any medical device company now needed to do this type of work and we were able to 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 pivot uh not completely away from the public sector and the academics and the governments uh but but to put more focus on that uh, that private sector medical device space um, and 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 really grow with that space, and that's that's been a very important key to us. I think another one was we added full time salespeople as quickly and as early as we could afford them. Um, I think it's very Canadian of us to build great products and expect the customers to find us and buy them, but you can't beat actually going out and selling the product. And it, it, that was uh, that was one of the watershed moments for us is when we actually started. Bringing in professional sales people, and uh, uh, that's when when the, the sales really started to accelerate. Uh, and, and then, lastly, uh, and this was more recent. This is only in the past four years where we really started to build out the leadership team with people who have uh, been there and done that in their various fields. Uh, and that has uh, that has also very much accelerated our posture in the industry right now as as we scale up. So it's a lot of long long answer to your question, but I'd say those have been fundamental to, to what's got us here and what's going to get us through the next couple of years.
0: Okay. Well, there's, there's so much in that answer. You know, first of all, I should say that all of us can hope to see, it'd be lovely to see a regulatory change that kind of creates a market for you. So that's, that's a bit of a blessing, but yeah. just putting that aside for a minute. I, I just want to get into the, into what you said about the salespeople, about bringing on, um, I think you said full-time salespeople, but doesn't that, I mean, when you bring them on early in the process, my understanding of, you know, when you work with salespeople is that they need um, a structured environment in order to succeed, a structured compensation structures. They mm-hmm. need uh, they need all sorts of material, um, you know, things to support them. Are you are you able to pivot your brains, your content uh, and to 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 support full time sales staff? It's such an early, early uh, part of your journey.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that is a significant challenge. You're absolutely right. I would say the one thing you need before you uh, bring in the salespeople is you need a product that is that is viable, That that once the customers get it in hand, they will succeed with it. If you sell them something before it's ready... Uh, oftentimes uh, that's not going to succeed. You're not going to get that renewal and your sales team is going to get really frustrated because you're essentially almost asking them to lie to potential customers about what the product can do. So getting the product to the point where it's fully baked and ready for prime time is I would say the first prereq. Uh, The second is um, really we devoted a very large percentage of our budget to sales and had to forego other things. Because of that, but it was it was worth the effort. So I mean, like I was <laughs> I was basically the the sales engineer for our first salesperson. I was uh, myself and, and Ian stefanison and we were both we were all both doing demos. We were both doing tech support. we had we had brought on a tech support person as well early on. We recognized in our particular field that that uh, without without uh, some sort of reliable customer support, we w- would have a hard time retaining customers because the problem space we were in was, was relatively complicated. But going back to sales, yeah, we, we put that as, as one of the highest priority items in our budget. And again, um, sort of sacrificed other things. Um, <laughs> I, I've done many, many product demos from a McDonald's hotspot, for example, or sitting in my car, uh, because we couldn't afford sales engineers at the time, but, but we could get that, that person who could get the calls for us, get us through the door and then close the deals, which I mean, if, you know, if 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 you can never, it's it's easy to uh, underestimate the power of having a fantastic sales team, but uh, when you have the right ones, the right people, the, they can uh, they can really work magic for you. So it's worth it's worth making those sacrifices.
0: Well, What's interesting is I would imagine that also um, being that engineer that accompanies people or stepping into that role, accompanying people on your sales calls, also helps with the deep domain knowledge because in a way you get to understand what the pain points are and if the product uh, is able to
1: meet them that's an excellent point and i do think that is why we have such deep domain expertise is because because of that exact process so and my, myself i probably did uh, about 250 product demos uh in the early wow. days uh, and and so i i heard everybody's pain points so when i when i would hear them I'd already heard them ten times before. I already had an answer for it, right? Uh, I was, I was, even though I'd never done a, well, I'd done maybe one lit review with OHRI, uh, at, but, but I didn't actually run the lit review process. But even, even that said, I was a domain expert on how you automate literature reviews, and uh, and it's because of those uh, those repeated repeated interactions with end users.
0: So if if we can think about startups that may be listening and are thinking, you know what? It's the closing part of the sales cycle that we're not able to achieve or something is going wrong in our sales cycle. And I don't think we have the expertise on the founding team to do it. They're thinking of going out and hiring a salespeople to do exactly what you did. What would you say? I know, I mean, you could probably do a one day workshop on this, but, you know, very quickly, what are what are three prerequisites you think that they have to have in place before bringing in that sales team? You've already mentioned one to me, uh, uh, you know, a fully functioning product uh, that they can trust and that they can sell. What are what are two other things that they should have in place before bringing in a sales team?
1: Well, again, you need to be able to fund them. Like you said, uh, uh, there's. There's, 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 there's the comp and you need to be able to set uh, a, a variable comp model that is achievable and that is attractive. Um, there's a big difference between any salesperson and the right salesperson and the right salesperson, um, may not be the most affordable one, but typically if you get the right person, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's well worth the differential i would say again support for those salespeople. they don't want to be out there stranded on their own if you can provide them with with the with the marketing backup uh, that they need to, to get through the get through the door so collateral um you know uh, any sort of assistance uh, with uh, with on the technical side so again we talked about sales engineering role who can somebody who can accompany them and do the demos let them focus on the on the getting the introductions uh, building the relationships and closing the deals. Um, I would say that's the other big piece. But so you, you you don't want to bring somebody in and just put them on an island. You need to be able to support them.
0: Mm. Now, when you look at that journey, you've been so great and so frank about talking about what worked. Uh, and that's great. Uh, let's talk about challenges. What were some of the key challenges that you faced in that scale-up journey? And and what did you learn from those experiences?
1: That's, uh, that's a good one. I, I would say and this is probably the case for for almost all businesses is is the, the most important thing you have in your business is is your people um and having the right people in the right seats at the right time is is critical um as as scale ups evolve those those roles evolve too and sometimes sometimes the people you have are not the, the right people to help you get to the next stage and that's that's a super hard thing to deal with um, there's a there's a great book called the hard thing about hard things um that's, a, that's sort of a Bible for me it's uh and it, it discusses that at length but you know you're, you're dealing with uh, people you've known for a long time and uh, they've been part of your journey and they're just not going to help you get to the next stage so I will say that most CEOs will tell you that they are too slow to make these, Team corrections. I would put myself in that category as well. Uh, early on, you know, we just we try to make do with what we had, and and try to make it fit, even though it didn't always fit. And, and I was so I would say your your team should always be number one on your priority list. If you have the right people in the right seats, you can work magic. And if you have the wrong people uh, in in the in the seats, it can be exactly the opposite. It can create a, a lot of additional work. And I, I would say. Uh, we will not talk to a single scale-up who won't say the same thing. Some of the other challenges we've uh, we've faced were being distracted by uh small competitors. So we were we were fortunate in that we we created the space that we're in. But within about three years, uh small competitors started to come out of the woodwork. And I think we spent way too much time trying to smack them down and play whack-a-mole with them. Um and and where we should have just focused on what we were good at and and stick to our knitting in in the end most of those small competitors sort of went away on their own but uh again i think that that that's a poor use of resources uh sometimes going after competitors who may or may not actually be meaningful to you in the big picture um pursuing the wrong customers is another one i would say we uh, We uh, we started selling to large organizations, and then we pivoted and started selling to students. But you have to sell to an awful lot of students to get the same amount of revenue you get from one Johns Hopkins, for example. Um, So, you know, that was probably a, a decision that you know, if we had a chance to to retake that decision, we'd make a different one. We'd do sell only to the larger customers and just leave the student market more or less unaddressed. I would say, um, you know, following the money is is, is important. So um, we recognize pretty early on, and this continues to be the case, that eighty percent of our revenue comes from less than twenty percent of our clients. If we could get more of that twenty percent style of client. Uh, we would be growing faster. And it's certainly an area that we're we're now pivoting um, heavily on is to go mostly after these enterprise clients, because not only are they larger deal sizes, but they're way stickier. Um, they're, they're, when organizations invest in your product, they're not just investing in the software, they're investing in changing their entire process to use your software. And so the cost of, of switching goes up dramatically, and they build their best practices around you. So um, if I were to do it all again, I would focus much more on the uh, enterprise uh, scale clients and had fo- and focus less on the uh, on the uh, on the smaller clients. And I guess lastly, uh, in the early days, we'd built a, a point solution uh, that basically solved a, a small piece of a large problem. Um, by going broader earlier, we could have moved into the enterprise space faster. Uh, And we are doing that now, but it's it could have been done quicker had we had we made that uh, come to that realization a little bit earlier. So those are some of the some of the things we've learned along the way.
0: What's interesting, because, uh, you know, I, I heard someone once say that that sometimes startups are nervous about the, the larger enterprise sales because the sales cycle is longer or you have to mm-hmm. sell through multiple committees. But at the end of the day, what you realize after everything closes is the amount of effort it takes to manage a, a mid-sized client and a large client may actually be the same, except one is more profitable. So, so I think I think I've I've heard I've heard that 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 lesson before from others. It's it's interesting to hear it from you as well, Peter. What's next for Distiller SR?
1: Uh, well, as as kind of alluded to, we're moving in, into the enterprise space in in a bigger way. We we already have beachhead accounts in about seventy percent of of the top ten pharmaceuticals and medical device companies and and, and government agencies. But again, many of those are just that—they're beachhead accounts. So not particularly large annual recurring revenue. Where we're going today is is focusing on broadening our footprint, going uh, higher, wider, deeper into these organizations. Having um, our our salespeople, certain salespeople at least, carry fewer accounts that allow them to focus on on, on basically building tighter relationships. Um, and, and at the same time, we've got our our. Uh, engineering team up to a scale where we can dramatically broaden what our product actually does. So we can expand forward and backward along the value chain to address more low-hanging fruit uh, in that uh, that value chain, in that process. So we're basically, again, moving from a point solution to a more enterprise-wide evidence management platform. Uh, and, and in doing so, uh, the goal is to make the product stickier, uh, making making uh, our average deal size much larger and and just making us more sustainable in the long run. Well,
0: it sounds like it's going to be quite the year for you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have the chance to learn more about Distiller SR. So thanks for being on the podcast.
1: It's been my pleasure.
0: And of course, many thanks to our loyal listeners too. It's always great to know that you're with us as we listen, learn and grow here on the podcast. I'm Manjula Salvaraja and I look forward to exploring more scale-up successes with you on our next episode of Invested in Our New Reality.